So why crypto? So why crypto? So why crypto? Featuring Vishal and Quay. Greetings. Welcome to another edition of So Why Crypto, where we look at crypto as a technology. My name is Quay. My partner in crime, Vishal. Today, we're going to conversate about Bitcoin. Specifically, why do we need Bitcoin as a technology? We continue to bring the experts. Published writer of The Seventh Property is here with us. Eric Gates, welcome to So Why Crypto. Thanks for having me, guys. Excited to talk Bitcoin. Got to talk Bitcoin. Um, before we deep dive into this very dense topic matter, we'd love to uh, know a little bit about yourself. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about you? Yeah, totally. I, um, you know, I have a background in finance and economics. I studied that in undergrad. I was working in management consulting, and then I was at a private equity firm after that. I I'm a CFA and, you know, going through all that studying in the financial area. Um, I wrote off Bitcoin for years. I said that this is a speculative asset. It has no fundamental value. And, you know, it took me a few years to eventually come around to it. And there's a lot of reframing of my thinking that I needed to have this, uh, you know, what was ingrained in me through my traditional finance education is something that, um, you know, it's a lot harder to understand Bitcoin with that kind of a background. And it took me a while. And a lot of people who kept pushing me to understand it. And eventually, once the idea that, um, you know, Bitcoin is this new monetary layer that can be used as an alternative to our current central banking system, that's when it really clicked with me. At first, I thought it was just this technology that, you know, had some technological value. But I was like, how do I value this thing? And if I can't value it or get a perspective on its value, then it's really hard for me to come to any sort of determination about how I would invest in it. So once it clicked with me that this is like an alternative financial system that's emerging here, that's when I got really interested. I was really aware of all the problems that exist in central banking. And, you know, I just always took it as that's the way the world works. I would like it to change, um, but there's nothing that would really fundamentally change that. There's just too much power that exists within that system. And um, yeah, once it once it got to the point where I realized like Bitcoin's big enough to where it actually really can't be stopped anymore. It's like a weed that's grown out too far. And, you know, governments around the world can play a game of whack-a-mole and they can try to get rid of it. But there's just no way that they can actually, you know, suppress it in entirety around the globe. And once that clicked with me and I was like, okay, this is the, uh, we're talking about a new technology of money that hasn't happened in millennia. Um, that's the biggest market in the world. We have something that's going to consume some proportion of, or perhaps most of that market. Um, why am I working on anything else? It's everything I care about. It's everything that I think matters in the financial world. This is probably the biggest thing, uh, opportunity that I'll see in our lifetimes of technological information. Um, innovation and societal restructuring and all the things that I think could come from it. And that's when I decided I'm going to jump into this and go all in and got deeper into Bitcoin. Right. Great. No, that's, that's, that's great. So what, what year was that you first sort of start dabbling into, into Bitcoin? So I think, you know, I wrote an essay on it in college in 2015. One of my professors brought it up. And 
he's like write a paper and that's when i was like oh it's speculative it doesn't have fundamental value you know and granted it was much earlier back then too there there was quite a bit about it that was less certain had i known what i know now back then i still don't know if i would have been a huge advocate just because it was so much smaller the certainty of the network security the adoption that would ultimately occur governments taking notice of it and whether or not they would try to you know cut the system off at its neck um that was still all kind of up in the air. It wasn't really until I think around like 2017, 2018 in that bull market where it had grown wide enough and large enough and the network was secure enough to where I was like, oh, this thing, this thing's really got legs now. But, you know, it was 2015 when I first heard it. And then I my logic was off around how to think about it for a long period of time. I kind of ignored it a bit. Gave, you know, I knew enough about finance where I could like I immediately wrote it off. Kept coming up over the years. A few friends brought it up with me. And then one time, like I had this friend, he's like, dude, you should really be looking into this thing. And I started picking around on the internet. And then I can't even remember what it was, but I came across some sort of like blog post. Uh, and I think I might have found it on Reddit. And it was just going into like the central banking aspect. And then that's once I knew that information, that changed the way that I thought about it. And I was like, okay, this is this is pretty real. So it was kind of like a four year process. And when I wrote my book, you know, I wrote the book that I wish I'd been given when I first heard about Bitcoin that explained things in a way that would have really got me from A to B in my understanding. Yeah, no, uh, I, I read your book uh, <laughs> within five days, actually, because I, I said, oh, my God, you explain in such a good way. You know, you start from history of money all the way to central banks and and then you talk about how this particular technology solves a lot of the problems we have now. Um, and, you know, I, I begin to understand crypto. I started writing it and, you know, not a lot of people actually dig deep into what even money is. Um, so let's let's start talking about it first, like what, what money is. Um, you know, one of the things that, that the way I, I have a first grader, uh, six-year-old, and she she's super eager to learn about uh, you know what multiplications are right she wants she she's like hey this is exciting this is a lot of things it could you know it could do uh and one of the thing is like she still hasn't really understand addition that well and it, it, it's somewhat analogous to how you know a lot of people want to jump into crypto but they don't really understand what even money is i think uh, you know you, you book sort of unveils a like, hey, fundamentally understand money, then you would see what type of power, uh, you know, crypto have in itself. And, uh, you know, w one of the examples I see is, you know, uh, looking at, uh, uh, if, you, if you look at a saw as a technology, its function is to cut wood. Uh, similarly, money is, you know, has three functions, store of value, unit of account, medium exchange. Uh, and I wanted you to sort of talk about how, how do you understand the, these three functions of money and uh, so our, our audience can get some understanding of, I think once you, once you understand that, that begin to uh, uh, give you fundamental understanding of what actually money is. So we'll, we'll start there. Yeah, I think that when I was, you know, a lot of people that I'll talk to, you know, everyday people who aren't as interested in these topics, the first thing when they think about what money is, and even even people who are highly educated, they just aren't, you know, perhaps as much in the financial field or economics fields. 
Um, they think that, you know, money is something that's created by governments. That's, you know, all they've ever really known. And we've been in a system like that for, a, you know, in recent history for a decent period of time. And that's one of the first misconceptions that I think people need to start with understanding is mm -hmm. in history, money emerged not as something created by governments. And for most of history, it wasn't something created by governments. Slowly and gradually over time, governments started to take more and more control over money in its various forms. And that's what ultimately led to the system that we're in today, where government controls all of money, they create all of money. We don't use any sort of real world resource for our money. It's just something that's arbitrary. It's something that the government has created and controlled. And there's really no limitations upon how they choose to manipulate our system. And that has really large effects on people because, you know, People in the US, they talk often about how we're in this capitalist society and capitalism is crony capitalism. And it's, it's, in, it's funny because they're right for kind of the wrong reasons. They kind of have a misconstrued view of, you know, what capitalism really is and the fact that we have this money created by our government effectively through a central bank. And that central bank's just controlled by the decision making of 12 different guys. Um, that's not capitalist. That impacts everybody's lives significantly. I mean, what, what do people care the most about when we talk about all these political issues? We care the most about, you know, how our lives change, how our standards of living change, what rights do we have? And that is something that more so than anything else, all these social issues that we hear about that are constantly being pushed in the media, more so than any of these social issues, what happens with our money is impacting your life much more. And, and that's the most important piece here is that, you know, money over time was something that was out of the control of centralized groups like the government, because money was something that had to have certain properties in order to function well for everyone. You know, if you're, um, if you want some form of like an equitable or fair system to exist in money, then it needs to be something that's kind of out of control in most people. And, and that's kind of how money emerged originally, you know, in primitive societies, there, there was no particular person who created money, everybody was able to go create it. And what how, how did they do that, they would go find certain goods in the real world, that maintained certain properties that made it function well for money. Um, so these ideas of what the functions of money are, you can really boil that those down to goods that had certain properties that enabled them to function pretty well. And when we think about what those properties were, they would typically find goods that had some degree, number one, that were scarce. That was the biggest thing is they, they, in whatever primitive society it was, it was some form of good that ultimately um, couldn't increase in supply very rapidly. Because even back then, primitive societies were very well aware that if our money doubles in supply over time, that changes prices, that benefits certain people more than it does others. And we, you know, we don't want that to be in our system. We want it to be, it to be something that's very limited that nobody can really, you know, manipulate to their advantage. And so they chose goods that had that type of a property. There are also goods that were, you know, good for trade so that you could divide them somewhat easily. You could um, combine them pretty easily and you can move them very easily. You could store them on yourself very easily. Um, so like, you know, beads of bones is one example that that was often used because, you know, uh, animals that were killed, bones were kind of like a very scarce, uh, you know, resource that existed often. They would carve off, you know, 
beaded necklaces, which were easy to store upon themselves because they were formed into beads. You could group and divide them very easily. Um, and, you know, the, 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 that's just one example of like types of money, you know, cattle was used, salt was used, things that were harder for people to find were typically used. Seashells are often referenced. Um, those were typically harder to find. Nobody wanted to use something like dirt because everybody could just find dirt very easily. Mm -hmm. So we saw throughout history that monies that had these certain properties started to emerge. And then those started to evolve over time as we started to realize and, you know, technology advanced. And as technology advanced, we had new innovations in what could occur with money. Um, you know, during the precious metal era, once we had technologies that enabled us to go mine precious metal resources and forge them in ways that we wanted, that's when we have what people are much more familiar with kind of moving out of these primitive forms of money into actual systems of gold and silver and, you know, copper and even, you know, tin in some forms. But these precious metals were superior because they were much more scarce than any other resource we could really find. That's what made gold what it is. That's why we had gold standards. That's why, you know, as good as gold became a phrase. These were things that didn't increase in supply rapidly, meaning they maintained their value over time very well. So we had precious metals chosen for that reason. And we had technologies that also enabled them to be good at uh, fulfilling the other properties of money over time. And then eventually, you know, this is when governments started to step in and governments started to say, okay, well, there's these problems in the private market. Uh, people are kind of taking gold and they're manipulating it in different ways. Um, and we can help you guys. So like a good example of this is when, when there was a big inefficiency with trading in, you know, gold and silver, where if you were to go to a merchant and you would say, I'm going to trade you, you know, I want to buy apples from you and you trade me a certain amount of gold in return for that. And they would have to take their bar of gold and like shave off a bunch of pieces. And that meant that little flakes and pieces like that would get lost in the process, which is interesting because that's actually one of the main reasons silver was used. Silver was less scarce than gold. So gold's supply would increase, you know, on average one and a half to two and a half percent a year throughout history. Silver's was closer to 16%. Because of that, people didn't care as much about losing little flakes of silver because it wasn't as scarce. It wasn't as valuable. So if you lost a little bit of silver, it wasn't as big of a deal to you. So actually, people were using silver for more trade to solve for that issue. It was called a bimetallic system when they did that. Um, but getting back to the point, when they shave off these little pieces, it was inefficient. It was time consuming. You had to wait all the time. So merchants were like, look, let's just start forging gold and silver into standardized coins. Certain, which all that meant was they had a certain weight that would be used as standard and they would create that into a few different weights and they could pretty much trade any value with that, you know, those different classifications of weight. And merchants realized that when you trust something other than the actual commodity, for example, in those coins, I created a level of trust. People were trusting when they weren't weighing a coin, they were trusting that it was that weight because it said it was that weight on it. So what merchants realized and other people realized is they could take advantage of this system by shaving a little bit of gold off of each coin, storing enough of those shavings up for themselves, and then minting them into the new coins. So a merchant gets a bunch of gold coins, they shave off a little bit off each so that the next guy doesn't really know. And then they could actually take a bit of gold from them and create new coins from it. So that was a form of, um, you know, in economics, the term is moral hazard that emerged in coinage systems where people trusted something other than just directly the weight of the gold. So that's when government stepped in and said, okay, 
um, you know, these guys are taking advantage of you. What if you let us control the weighting systems and you let us provide verification of it? Um, we can kind of help solve this problem so that, you know, people aren't manipulating your value for you. And the irony is that governments ended up doing the exact same thing. And they realized that they could take value and then they could push the uh, coins it back in. So like during the Roman Empire, for example, you know, what started off as like a silver Denarii coin. Uh, so like Game of Thrones, Denarius Targaryen, she's kind of named after the Roman coin, the silver Denarius. And um, that was their most commonly used currency. And when the Roman government started diluting that over time. So whenever they receive it as tax payments, they would melt it down, reforge it, and they'd take a less scarce metal than silver, like copper or tin. And they would push that into the middle of it. And you could like cut the coins open. You'd see like, oh, the majority of this is actually just copper. It's surrounded by silver. Um, and they did that to effectively take a bunch of silver, push out more silver coins, and then keep a lot of those coins for themselves. So there's all these different forms of history where people realize that when you trust something other than the actual weight of the value of what you're using, then people take advantage of you and manipulate that. And governments used uh, the private market's uh, ability to take advantage of people, and they actually ended up doing the exact same thing themselves once they took control of it. And that was kind of the story throughout history. Um, a big transition was when we moved from using actual coinage to start using paper money. And, and it wasn't just because governments totally enforced paper money. It actually emerged privately for good reason. Paper had a lot of superior properties to these precious metals. It was much easier to create receipts that you could group and divide. You could carry quite a bit more of it around. It was hard to go lug gold everywhere with you. Um, and you know, once we had various uh, innovations like the printing press and the telegraph and you know, double entry bookkeeping, that made paper money very easy to transfer across Europe. So that was, you couldn't do that with gold. So people are like, okay, if, we, if we're using these paper note type systems, that's fine. The one problem with paper is that it's not scarce. It's very easy to just go create more paper money. So how do we protect it from that? Well, we have to have like a rule effectively where all the paper that's being trusted to be scarce is tied to a certain amount of gold that's in reserves held at a bank. So a bank would take a bunch of gold from people and then give them paper receipts and people were trusting that that receipt they had was redeemable for an amount in gold. And as long as it was redeemable, then it would remain scarce. So paper had all these good properties. It lacked scarcity. We had to tie it to gold so that it could still be scarce. And that was kind of how a lot of these gold standard type systems eventually emerged. Um, once again, there's a level of trust in that. You had to trust that the banks were actually doing what they said they were. And when they took advantage of that trust, the government stepped in, and that was kind of the beginning of culmination of central banking, where we you can trust the government to actually maintain proper control. You can't trust private market banks and their incentives to do it. And um, and that was the birth of central banking, and central banks ended up you know taking this system to the to the greatest extent they possibly could of issuing credit, where now today we don't even have any sort of backing of something that's scarce. It's totally up to the discretion of governments as to how much money they can issue, and they've completely removed any form of monetary properties from our money, and they control quite a bit about society today because of that. So that was kind of the evolution of you know money and how it developed and how governments took more control over it and eventually removed all the properties of money that people used in the beginning 
to give themselves some form of certainty around their value. And now we completely trust the government with all of that. Um, and so anyways, all of that really just boils down to money emerged privately. It was something that people chose because it had certain properties that made it good for forms of trade. Uh, governments changed it over time to benefit themselves at the expense of the holders of money. And um, Bitcoin has ultimately emerged as a solution to that problem. And it's the fact, the only reason we that what made Bitcoin so innovative is that it's a form of money that actually can't be stopped now that it's native to the internet in a similar way that like certain torrent files can't be stopped. And, you know, certain ways that we've had all these, uh, you know, like BitTorrent or LimeWire, these things that existed for forever and they were doing things that people didn't want, governments didn't want, but nonetheless, it spread far and wide enough. You can't really control it. Um, so with that innovation, we created a form of money that actually can't be stopped. That's when it clicked for me in my head, like, holy crap, this thing could actually win. Before that, it was impossible to ever break out of the system because governments could always stop it. There was no way for us to ever actually like move back to a gold standard. And in our modern economy, it would be far too inefficient to actually you know, trade on a gold standard. So once I realized that with Bitcoin, I was like, holy crap, this is like, this is a major societal change that's emerging. Oh, that's great. Good, good history of money. And thanks for explaining your thought process, because this is, this is pretty brilliant. I mean, this was all in, in your book as well. So uh, thanks for explaining. Uh, one, one of the things that you mentioned in, uh, in your book is uh, they could, there should only be one form of money. Uh, so obviously in the world today that we have US dollar, yen, euro, gold, silver, all those things, you know, people use to trade and whatnot. Can you explain why you think in an ideal world, we only need like single form of money? And in, in this case, let's say Bitcoin. Yeah. And to be clear, it's not that I think, um, like I think in like, yeah, in an ideal world, we would only want one form of money. But the fact is, is the world's not perfect. Sure. And, and, and then it really, this question boils down to what your definition of money is. And I won't get down into the semantics of it. But if we assume that money is something that fulfills all properties of money, um, meaning it serves all the functions of money of being a store of value, medium of exchange, and a unit of account, then by that definition, we would probably only have one monetary standard. Now, there's exceptions to this because the world's not perfect. Information's not totally transparent. People are able to have control, whether that's governments or institutions, over how money works. So as long as that exists, and while Bitcoin, I think, undermines quite a bit of that, there's still not all of that will go away. People will still be able to have some form of control over things. And then there's going to be utility trade-offs between different forms of money as well. Um, while I think that we can create a system that's like native to Bitcoin that pretty much encompasses all of those utility trade-offs and will optimize it eventually, um, a lot of those functions are what crypto is trying to create within its own system. Um, I think the problem is, is that crypto has kind of sold its soul in order to give that extra utility, and it's given up kind of a lot of the very important functions that are necessary for this to actually work. And if you give those up, then, you know, it's not going to happen and governments are going to control it. Um, so that that's what I what I think is important is that. You know, there's going to be edge markets. It's it, it's probably not going to be like purely one form of money. And then there might be other things that kind of exist in some form of money. You know, an example would be like 
prisoners are going to use something in prison where they don't have technology like cigarettes or you know there might be people who are disconnected from the internet in a particular society and they might be using something else um there there's of course there's plenty of exceptions you can write to it but like generally speaking the reason that we want to have one standard of money is because it's ideal. It makes things much better. Everybody eventually converges upon one type of money because that makes trade much more efficient because you want to be using the thing that everybody else is using. Um, and it makes uh, economic calculation much more simple. So like today, you we have all these currency conversions and all of this. And why is that, you know? Going back to my earlier point, because governments control money. So governments all want to have their own form of money. I mean, if there was one person in power, then it'd probably be everything under under one regime. But because of that, every government wants to have their own form of money because of the benefits they gain from that. So now we got to deal with all these cur currency conversions and you know change our economic calculation in all these different ways. That creates a ton of problems for people. And there's a lot of people that have jobs because of that. Um and it's kind of a waste that's created on society, all the people working to like ensure that, you know, all this stuff works and the accountants and everything. Those are people who could be working on potentially solving cancer or something. There's, there's all these, there's an economic waste that comes from these extra complexities of having it. Ideally, we don't want it. People are incentivized to use one form of money. It's really a question of what barriers exist that prevent that from occurring in the market. Um, and while I don't think those barriers will go away, I think with Bitcoin being like this borderless technology that can run on the internet, it does reduce quite a bit of those barriers. And I think if it does kind of undermine a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the sovereign influence over this system, then that'll, it'll, it'll change pretty significantly how many different forms of money we have. So while there might be exceptions to it, um, you know, that's why I'm focused on Bitcoin is that, you know, I see Bitcoin is the only form of money that has all the necessary properties to eventually create some type of system like this. And because of that, I think it'll eventually consume the majority of the market. And that's why I'm totally focused on. It. I think it will be the standard that everybody's using it at some point in the future. Got it. Um, <clears throat> let's, let's talk about, you know, mostly we talked about the six properties that mostly people have talked about historically. Uh, in your book, you brought up, brought up immutability, uh, you know, where you can't go back and change uh, the ledger in this case. Uh, explain to us, the audience, like, why, why do we need to have that property? How, how does that help with the evolution of money and uh, making it more sound money, as a lot of people call Bitcoin? Yep, yep. So I think that what we realize with Bitcoin, and it's kind of done this in one form, is that having a form of money that isn't changing is really the key piece here. Being able to understand that this form of money, we know how much of it's going to exist and how much will exist in the future. And that's very important because it allows people to uh, conduct economic calculations very efficiently. I mean, we look at today when the supply of money changes and how much that impacts everybody's lives. I mean, most people who are investors and in like public securities, like stocks and bonds, they don't even really focus as much on what the underlying fundamentals of these assets are and, you know, whether or not they're valuable. They just watch the Federal Reserve and say, what's the Federal Reserve going to change within our monetary system? How is that going to impact these prices broadly? So their whole game they're playing is trying to anticipate what's going to happen when the supply of money changes and uh, ultimately credit because our money today is basically just credit. Um, so 
having a certainty in your money enables people to, it, it, when you think about it at like a base level, entrepreneurs, when they go start and create things that make, you know, the world more valuable, they make life cheaper for people. They create innovations that make your life better. They are taking on a ton of risk. They have an idea. They don't know whether or not that idea is going to work. And not only do they have to worry about whether or not their idea is going to work, they have to worry about whether or not, you know, the market is going to be good. And it's good timing of whether or not they can actually even do this idea, whether or not it's good. And having the more certainty that you can give a society with their expectations of the future, the easier it is for that society to ultimately, or the entrepreneurs within it to actually plan and actually create projects that benefit people's lives. So when we have that greater ease of expectations, um, that that's a huge benefit. And the way that like I really define immutability is, um, you know, if you talk to somebody who's like a computer programmer, they're going to tell you immutability means doesn't change like at all. And that's true in like computer science, but there's another definition that means it's like highly resistant to change. And that's kind of what I mean by uh, with what happens in Bitcoin. It's highly resistant to change. Theoretically, it can change. There's minor changes that can occur within it, but the fundamental properties that it maintains, um, it would require everybody who's involved in the, or a vast majority of people involved in the system in order to make those changes ultimately happen. So like, that's the key piece here is that it's immutable in that sense. It's very resistant to change. And that's a very desirable property we can find at money. And when I, we go, when I go back to like that history of uh, money that I had earlier in the episode, there's kind of like three ways in which intermediaries, AKA potentially governments can get involved in how money works. They can get involved in how it's produced. They can get involved in how it's stored or they can get involved in how it's verified. And like intermediaries like banks emerge to like produce or to give people those types of services with money. And they're valuable in some senses, but it's also a vector of attack where either governments can come in or even the banks themselves will take advantage of people. So those three functions of production, storage, and verification are really important. And I think that if you have enough decentralization within those three functions, that is how you create a form of money that's immutable. So if it's something that's produced in a decentralized way, very similar to how primitive monies were created, everybody could just go out and find, you know, bones wherever they wanted. And why, why was everybody comfortable with that? Because there just weren't a lot of bones. We knew that, you know, we had a lot of certainty that if everybody was doing it, it's going to be hard for them to find it. Um, which meant that, you know, the verification needed to be decentralized too. You know, in primitive societies, everybody was verifying money in trade. Everybody was very familiar with it because they were all creating it themselves. So they're all knowledgeable enough to verify, oh, that's that's fake. That's not a bone. That's a seashell or whatever it is. Um, and, and, you know, and then the last piece is that decentralized storage too. Can we have a form of money that's controlled by the individual themselves versus why, you know, like today where everybody, you know, our money's stored in a bank. We, nobody's running around with a bunch of cash other than, you know, maybe some guys in Mexico city, but <laughs> nobody's very few people are running around with cash and trading it. So it's, it's something where what the Bitcoin, eco, Bitcoin solved the production of money in a decentralized way. Um, it's also solved the verification of money in a decentralized way. The key last piece that I think is going to be paramount to the success of Bitcoin and determine what it ultimately becomes is the decentralized storage of it. And there's going to be this balance where, you know, 
Bitcoin enables us to all own Bitcoin ourselves. There's, it's hard to do that at this current stage. Um, it's going to get easier for us to do that. But nonetheless, there's always going to be people who, you know, can't actually own the Bitcoin themselves. A good example of that is like a corporate account. You know, you're going to have to, a corporation is a group of people. So you're going to have to trust a group of people with control over that if everybody operated on, you know, Bitcoin one day. So the, the, that's that's an example of like, it's actually impossible to have, you know, one individual controlling it. Therefore, we need mechanisms where, you know, people are controlling it on behalf or organizations of people are controlling it together in some form. Um, but the the key risk to Bitcoin is that everybody, you know, it turns into the system where like, for example, with what happened with all the exchanges this year, where everybody just keeps their Bitcoin controlled by some company and that company can go commit fraud with it or they can do whatever they want with it. And if it's always controlled by other people, then it's not really emerging as a form of money. It's just emerging as a form of like value storage, in which case it'll just turn into like gold 2.0 for the Internet. Um, but if people start to actually hold themselves and then we have other technologies that enable Bitcoin to be used easily for trade, like the Lightning Network, that actually enables it to be something where it can be you know, used as money at a global level, in which case its value in the future will be much different from if it's just gold 2.0. If it's just gold 2.0, you know, it'll probably be consuming the market of gold. If it's global money used for payments, it'll be consuming global money used for payments. And those are just two like hypothetical extremes. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think it's going to end up somewhere in the middle. And there's a lot of interesting technologies emerging that are enabling it for payments like the Lightning Network. There's other custodial models that are emerging, uh, like federated mints, which are enabling people to, rather than say, okay, you have to go learn how to set up a Bitcoin node and how to store your private keys safely and spend, you know, 15, 20 hours learning that process and then monitoring it yourself, some people want to do that. And for people that really have an incentive to, they will. But not everybody's going to want to do that. Mm -hmm. And what is, you know, this like federated mint technology, it goes back to this idea of localization, which is something I think is going to be a key trend that emerges if we do start to see this network build out more. You know, if you have to trust somebody, then you want to trust people that you actually do have trust with. You don't want to trust Sam Bankman-Fried living in the Bahamas. You know, you want to trust maybe your father or maybe your uncle or maybe your brothers and sisters. Those are people you have a lot more trust with. Number one, because you've known them your whole lives and you know who they are and what they're capable of. And number two, there's a huge social cost to any sort of defection against, you know, your interests within that. If they were to like steal all your money from you, then... You know, they risk being totally exiled from your family and social network. So there's also an incentive for them to not want to do something like that. So the community trust model, how societies emerged, what, you know, humanity kind of evolved to function as is really interesting because I, I perceive that, you know, this idea that, okay, there's some people who want to take control over their worth and they'll, they'll act, they'll do all the necessary work to get up to it. Perhaps those people can be leaders of their communities and then their friends and family or their church or their school or wherever it is somewhere within their immediate community of people that they trust are trusting them to have some sort of control over it for them. And I see this idea of localization and community trust starting to emerge more. And that might be a happy medium between 
trusting a third party with all of it or doing all the work yourself to do it yourself. Um, maybe it's, I trust people that I actually trust. And that would be a decentralized form of storage. You know, if a bunch of communities all have can trust, there's no way for anybody to really exert control over the system still. And uh, so, you know, rounding this all back to immutability, I see there's different technologies. Bitcoin's kind of solved too. The last key piece is that community trust model or however, you know, the storage of money is conducted. And if we have some form of storage that keeps the storage of money decentralized, then Bitcoin will emerge as this immutable form of money. And there's going to be massive benefits to society because of that. You know, it, it seems that with trust that most people decided to uh, trust just trust the government blindly, right? They did. They forgot what the use of money was for, right? And then they just were like, "Well, the government's going to save us. We should, you know, just believe in them." So, the best way to get back to this place of trust is—I don't want to say peer to peer, but just what you were discussing right now of just keeping it family, keeping it friends, keeping it, you know, in a close knit way um, to get to that point. Exactly. Yeah, it's there, there's natural ways that society evolved to have trust between people And the more connected and the larger our society's got. It's very unnatural for us to actually have trust with people all over the Internet and all over the world. And, you know, and we right. see all these horrible problems that have emerged from that. You know, think about all the bad things that happen on social media with scams and frauds. You know, it's, just, it, it's very unnatural. Humans can't you know, we humanity, uh, we can't really keep within our mental model more than like a small amount of people within our mind. Right. It's like very hard for us to like know thousands or hundreds of people. We just haven't evolved for it. So it's actually very hard for us to effectively like make judgment and create trust within people that are distant from us in large scale. So it, the community trust model is what we evolve for. It's what we're familiar with. It's what our intuition helps us with judging people. And, uh, and I think that's, that's something that'll be really important. Ideally, I love, you know, and maybe maybe it gets simple enough to where everybody owns their own Bitcoin one day or like 95% right. of people do. Um, maybe it's simple enough to ultimately get to some extent like that. And, um, and people decide to learn enough, you know, it's similar to like computer education for people and how hard that is for older generations and never got it. But the younger generations started early and they understand it very well. It's part of their lives. It's not very complex for them. I, I, I see that being another big trend too. It's like, if this does emerge at scale, then like, you know, the idea of being your own bank would be part of like this, mm -hmm. um, you know, adolescent education that you're getting at some point. There, there's a lot of ways that it can go. And I, you know, I don't have claim, I, I don't claim to have certainty over it. But, you know, with what I'm trying to do in the industry is make sure that it doesn't go the route of everybody has their money on an exchange or some sort of right. third party or government controls all of it. So, so gold was the closest thing that uh, fulfills three functions of the several properties of money. Um, January 3rd, 2019, we had a new game in town. It's 2009. Oh, sorry, 2009, excuse me. Uh, we had a new player in the game, Bitcoin. Can you explain Bitcoin uh, basic to a like, 12-year-old smart child? Yeah, so I would say that Bitcoin is a form of money that you can send to anyone in the world that you can store yourself and nobody, you don't have to ask anybody for permission in order to do that. Um, 
and it maintains its value because it doesn't increase in supply very drastically. And we're certain that it won't increase in supply very drastically. And for it's for those three reasons that I think Bitcoin will be successful. Um, and it's for those three reasons, it's, it's valuable. There's nothing else in the world. There's no other technology in the world that can say that. And that's what makes it uniquely distinct. Um, but yeah, that's how I break it down. Thank you. Um, and so there are three key players in Bitcoin to make it work. Uh, miners, programmers, investors. Um, can you give a little more details on how they play that role they, they play into the Bitcoin network? Yeah. So, I mean, within like the Bitcoin network specifically, um, basically the miners are the ones that are effectively producing the Bitcoin. Um, so when new Bitcoin gets created, it's because miners are trying to solve this complex math problem. And that's something that complex math problem was necessary um, to be solved to create new Bitcoin because it makes it very expensive to create new Bitcoin. And that's what makes Bitcoin so secure. It needs to have this uh, expensive form of uh, creating it. So like when we, it's very similar to the reason that gold is so scarce and the reason gold doesn't increase in supply drastically you know, there's a ton of gold under the ground. If all the world powers got together and we're like, we want to mine all of the gold, then they could certainly do that. They could increase the supply of gold very rapidly. Mm -hmm. um, but it would be very, very expensive for them to go do that. And it would get increasingly more expensive for them to do that. Bitcoin was created in the same way. The problem was, is there was no real world cost to creating digital things. Digital things are so cheap to create that in order to make them expensive to create, we had to find some sort of solution. And it was Adam Back who, through his uh, creation of Hashcash, that used these uh, puzzles that are hard for computers to solve. And by that innovation was how we took the concept, the monetary property of scarcity, and we brought it into the digital world and we said, okay, this is how we make digital things scarce. We, this math problem is hard for computers to solve it. In order for a computer to create something, it has to solve this problem. And that's what the miners are doing is they're trying to solve this hard problem and it makes the supply of Bitcoin scarce. Um, so that's kind of their primary function is that what they do is they hear about transactions from all the different people on the network. So when we say the Bitcoin network, that means any sort of computer that has the Bitcoin software on it. And all these computers around the world all have the Bitcoin software on them. And they're all communicating with each other. And the way that they communicate is they all, when you go download the Bitcoin software on your computer, you can go download Bitcoin Core. You download the software, it immediately will go link up to a bunch of other nodes on the network. And you guys, it, it'll randomly select them and it'll say, okay, I found eight different nodes. Um, every time you hear about something, you tell it to your nodes. And every time they hear about something, they're going to tell it to you as well. So it's called a gossip protocol. And it's things that spread through gossip spread incredibly fast. Think about it like with social media. Yeah, um, sure. that, that It's a great way to spread information through a network and to spread it in a way that's not controlled by one particular source. So that's how transactions propagate throughout the network. And Miners are one of the nodes plugged in and they're listening and they serve a particular function with their particular type of software that enables them to 
listen to a bunch of transactions, combine all the transactions that follow the rules of the network into a block. And that's just, you know, think about it like a Word document that's got a bunch of transactions on it. And they only add ones that they think follow the rules. And then they order them and put them into a block. And then the whole time they're trying to solve this math problem. The second they solve it, then they can push that block out to everybody else. They gossip it. They spread it. Everybody says, oh, this guy did solve the answer. Um, we're going to all add it to our different uh you know, ledgers are blockchains, and then we're going to move forward and start solving the next one. So that's why it's a chain. It's a bunch of different blocks that everybody's constantly updating. And in order to add your block to everybody else's blockchain, you have to solve this math problem. And that's the general idea of what miners are doing. Um, you also have, you know, nodes that are general nodes. Like if you go download the Bitcoin software on your computer and you want to use it to send and receive Bitcoin from people, then, you know, what you're doing is you're linking up to other nodes and you're verifying transactions and passing along transactions to other people. Whenever you want to send a transaction, then you communicate to the other eight nodes and you say, here's a transaction I want to send. They spread it throughout the network. It takes on average like 40 seconds for about 95% of the network to be aware of your transaction. And then miners hear about it through that process. And eventually they will add it to their block if it follows all the right rules. And then once it's added to the block, that's the agreed upon blockchain that everybody's following. And we can all observe that. We can all say, here's all the new transactions that have been added. So that's how you send and receive transactions is by just simply stating them, telling the people you know about them. And once, if they follow the rules, everybody's gonna tell everybody. And then eventually a miner is gonna hear about it and put it into the blockchain. Yeah. Um, and like th those are kind of like the two primary functions that are occurring. Um, the other question kind of gets more into, you know, what are the, uh, you know, who are the actual people that are involved in this? So we're kind of talking about the node level. Mm -hmm. And then now we can talk about it at the personal level to your original question. And um, so when we think about the different people, it's really we have the investors in the network. If there weren't people that believed Bitcoin was valuable, then this network wouldn't function. Bitcoin didn't have value. Nobody would have an incentive to participate in it. So the investors are one of the primary functions. They understand Bitcoin. They determine whether or not they think it'll be valuable in the future. And they choose to buy it or they choose to hold it or they choose to sell it based on that expectation. And that's kind of the function they're fulfilling. Um, and then, you know, you have the computer scientist types who are the people that are building software and they're building a lot of things. They're building th other technologies that link to Bitcoin and they use Bitcoin as online money. And that brings Bitcoin forward and it gives it more utility. It allows it to do more things. And if, if we were just to use the Bitcoin software as is, a, it, it couldn't be global money. There's a lot of problems that that would have. Um, but a lot of the developers are building the system out in a way that is going to, you know, it's very similar to how our financial system works. It's also very similar to how the internet works. Right. Um, Bitcoin was created in the original form that it was without a lot of the utility um, that we would desire of a global form of money because there's trade-offs. You can't have 
all the utility you want and you can't have all the security and decentralization that you want. And any sort of, you know, cryptocurrency that says it does a lot more things in Bitcoin is ultimately trading off some form of centralization and security in order to give you that. So why didn't, you know, why hasn't our financial system uh, or the internet itself built out in a way where all of the different things we want exist within, you know, one layer of software. Mm -hmm. Um, and the reason that is, is because of the trade-offs. What we realized when we were building out those systems is that, okay, well, at the base layer, we need something that does one thing very, very well, and it's very secure. This is the uh, structure upon which we're building everything else. We don't want to use wood. We want to use steel. And we want to make sure that it's going to you know, withhold as it builds higher and higher. And um, that was the idea with Bitcoin is they're like, we're not going to compromise on any form of security. We want this thing. To, this is going to be the base layer. It's going to be the structure. We need this thing to be steel. And that meant it was limited in a lot of forms of utility. The benefit is that what you can do is build software on top of Bitcoin that, you know, what that means is it integrates with the software of Bitcoin. It uses Bitcoin as its money. And um, that software can be better at some things than Bitcoin and worse than Bitcoin at some things. Right. So the Lightning Network is an example of like the next layer that's building out on Bitcoin. That makes it incredibly cheap, fast, and efficient, more so than any other technology actually in our traditional system to send instant global payments. So like that's a massive innovation. Um, there's That doesn't mean that it's going to be the ultimate payment layer. There's problems with it. Um, it may not ever emerge, but I'm optimistic for it. And um, that has a trade-off of, it's less decentralized in Bitcoin um, and there's more complications that emerge within it because of that, but it's perfect for sending payments and it's way better than Bitcoin at that. So what does that mean? Well, it means that if we're using lightning for payments, then worse comes to worse and something goes wrong. Um, Bitcoin doesn't get hurt by that. Lightning gets hurt by that. Mm -hmm. So we are effectively putting a barrier between the global form of money that everybody desires and the ultimate, ultimately the cost of having some greater form of centralization. And that's really key because if we had a form of money that was at risk of some sort of major technological issue or some sort of major form of um, you know co-opting by a centralized party, then that can undermine the entire system and the entire system would crumble. So like, that's why we want to have those risks ultimately be siloed into layers above it. And we can gain utility by pushing these different trade-offs in different layers. Um, so, you know, that, that, that's kind of a lot of the developers are working on problems, trying to solve how these different layers are going to build out what's going to work, what's not going to work and debating all of that on, you know, Twitter mm -hmm. or on discord or all these different, you know, forums that are public. And, that's key function. There's also developers who are the Bitcoin core developers. They're, they're the guys who ultimately have the ability to provide updated versions of the Bitcoin code. So their job is to, you know, it's, it's almost like academic research. They're full-time trying to solve all these different issues that are different um, updates that people want to make to the Bitcoin software and weigh the costs and the benefits and test them out and see how they would work and whether or not it ultimately makes sense for us to implement them. Because going back to that point about security, the worst thing we could do is try to push out a software update towards Bitcoin 
And that ultimately has a major problem that undermines the security of Bitcoin and the entire system crumbles beneath it. So it's a very careful, gradual process of any minor change that they're making. Um, and they can't just issue the software and then everybody has to use it. That's one of the huge benefits of Bitcoin. They're the guys who can control the updates and they can send that out. But in order for the software to actually be used, it legitimately requires consensus among the network. So what makes Bitcoin Bitcoin? The fact that a bunch of people have downloaded a similar software on their computers all over the world. If you want those people to all change their software, then you have to get them to agree to change their software. They all have to download an updated form of it. So the developers can present and they can push out new updates, but people have to ultimately choose whether or not they wanna download that and use that. So there's kind of a political process with all this. That's why a lot of changes to Bitcoin are very highly debated. Anybody can submit a software change. A core group of developers have the ability to actually push it out um, and give it to people. But what happens is, is people within the community will all say, okay, um, here's something I don't like about Bitcoin. I want to change that. I'm going to create this new change to the software. And I'm going to see if I can get a bunch of people to agree with me. And if they can, and they can submit it to the core team, then it becomes a huge form of debate. And everybody talks about what's good about it, what's bad about it. And if enough consensus can be achieved among the broader community of people who are all involved, then the core guys can all update it and push it out. And they'll say, okay, everybody agrees. We're all going to you know, push out the software, but it still doesn't mean it's going to completely happen. Um, you know, like the most recent update that was pushed out with Taproot within Bitcoin is one example. And there's not a lot of nodes that are actually using Taproot. So a lot of people are still using older softwares. There's still the original Bitcoin software that was created in 2009, you know, that also is still running. And that's the whole point with all these software updates is that we want within, you know, a hundred years for that original software to still be compatible mm -hmm. with all the softwares we're using today. So whenever we push out a change, that change is kind of restricted by whether or not that change would still be backwards compatible with that original version of Bitcoin. And that it's really key because the second we start pushing out changes, um, that aren't compatible with older versions, that creates fragmentation within the network. That creates forks, like what we see with altcoins all the time. Um, and we don't want that. We only want the original Bitcoin chain to exist. And every time we have had somebody who wanted to change it so that it wasn't backward compatible, that turned into a fork that ultimately you know, lost most of its value, like Bitcoin Cash or something like that. Um, and so the whole idea is we want it to be backwards compatible. We want people to adopt it, but a lot of people still don't even want to adopt a lot of the newer versions. The newer versions provide benefits. Maybe they should. Um, but the whole point of this is that it's very hard to change the software of Bitcoin and get people to actually use it. Mm -hmm. And um, and developers are working on a lot of different functions to do that, as well as trying to build out softwares that integrate with it. Um, and yeah, so like that, that's kind of, I, I hope that gave a bit of clarity around like how a lot of the things work with Bitcoin. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. You know, one of the thing uh, worth mentioning about the Lightning Network, I'm still learning about it. They don't have their own coin. It's just built on top of it just to make Bitcoin more useful. Um, and also uh, the, the difference between most other cryptos and Bitcoin, Bitcoin moves slowly because it it really values the security of it. And uh, 
I'm, I'm kind of hearing from you as you, you mentioned the miners and you mentioned the, the programmers like this is not built where we're going to keep changing it super quickly like okay security is, is, is really really essential and uh, uh, yeah thanks for highlighting all that. Uh, that that's been part of my search too. Yeah, I think in the reason that I'm, I think it's so important is that if you create, if you give up on the security piece and you create centralization within that base layer, um, then I don't see this system ever emerging. I just see it being something that at best gets co-opted by governments in some form, um, which is, you know, when it, like Ethereum brought a lot of people into the ecosystem because it does a lot of things that Bitcoin being slow moving hasn't done. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was a bit premature to be bringing in a lot of that functionality and giving it to retail investors directly. And we can see all the fraud that emerged from that. Sure. Number one, I think that that's one big thing. So like when those things happen, you don't want those things necessarily to have consequences for like the base layer money. Um, you want it to be like one-off situations, but I think with Ethereum, it's kind of centralized itself so much to the point where, you know, if a government wanted to shut it down tomorrow, that's that's very possible. Um, Bitcoin, you could you could cause it a ton of problems. Um, but ultimately, you know, we saw that when China banned it and the majority, 65 percent of Bitcoin miners were in China. What happened? It just moved everywhere else in the world. You know, it's just, it, it's a weed. It, you can't, you can, you know, cut down a few pieces, but it's just going to keep growing in other directions. Um, centralization removes that whole property. And, and I think that, you know, most of the crypto is just completely centralized and there's, you know, and, and there's tons of scams, but, you know, legitimate attempts at creating something that could still be decentralized and provide a lot more utility all within the base layer, um, I think have sacrificed too much on the centralization. And, you know, I'm not incredibly optimistic for their future if governments can control them. And, you know, I, I think there's a high likelihood that we could see things like Ethereum become um, CBDC type platforms where, you know, right now the majority of block transactions are all compliant with OFAC sanctions by the government on Ethereum. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, th th there's nothing that's very like freedom oriented about that. And, you know, I could see it being used as a platform for the issuance of like government enabled technologies, which doesn't mean that Ethereum is going to go down in value necessarily, probably means it'll go up in value. Um, but what, you know, what I got involved in this industry for was, to actually create a societal revolution through changing the way money works. And I, I think Bitcoin's directly aligned with that. Yeah. Well, let's, let's speak on that. Uh, let's talk about the future of Bitcoin. Um, it took the internet decades to have mass adoption. Bitcoin, 14, almost 14 years old. What will, what will it take for mass adoption for Bitcoin? Yeah, that's a, that's a million dollar question. Um, <laughs> I think that, you know, since I've been involved, I've been surprised at how quickly things have moved with Bitcoin. So I feel like every estimate I've ever had has always been, you know, an overshoot and it happened a bit more quickly. Um, and I think the reason for that is that information just spreads so much more quickly today. And because Bitcoin is digital information, it spreads a lot more quickly than, you know, what we've seen other things. Like, you know, when the internet was emerging and why it took decades to emerge, well, it's because there was no internet for the internet to spread around. So we had to actually build that network that enabled things to spread very rapidly. Now that we have a technology that's spreading through the internet, um, I think an adoption can be a lot more rapid. There's certain, there's a lot of things that need to exist in order for that to happen. Um, 
number one, the most limiting is that like Bitcoin's price needs to go up a lot more. If Bitcoin's going to be used as global money, then it needs to have a large enough market to where large buys and sells of it don't impact the market price. And which is a major advantage that gold currently has over Bitcoin is it just has a much larger market. You could go sell a billion dollars worth of gold tomorrow and it's not going to affect price. You could go sell a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin and it's going to impact its market price. So that that's one of the key things is it's got to grow through the investors and it's all part of like a virtuous cycle that occurs. And it's, um, you know, new tech, more technologies created, better, you know, applications that use Bitcoin that make it easier for people. More people start using it or holding it for different reasons. Education spreads is another thing. They, a lot more people start holding it for different reasons. Um, that increases the price. That makes its success more likely to succeed. That means it's more attractive to mine Bitcoin. That brings more miners to the network and make it more secure. And it's this virtuous cycle of building and building and building that ultimately causes people to invest more and more and more into it. Then goal being that we have enough technology and we have enough online applications to where its utility is just far and away more efficient than using anything in our traditional system. If there was an incredibly simple way for people to all start trading Bitcoin with each other, then, uh, which there, there's more complicated ways. I think some people in the industry kind of lose sight of like how easy you actually have to make things to get adoption. But nonetheless, people are working incredibly hard on solving this. Mm -hmm. The bigger thing is just like constantly pushing adoption. It's like if, if tomorrow, at you know every every you know different place if i go to the coffee shop if i go to the gym if i go to dinner everybody's accepting bitcoin um and they all have like point of sale terminals that are compatible with it then i would like it's, it's super easy to use when i'm down in el salvador and i'm trading bitcoin with people i actually prefer it it's very quick just gdi code or uh you know gri code and then or what am i saying qr code sure. and then um i don't know why where i started with that but like um you know, it just you flash a QR code and then boom, it happens immediately over the Lightning Network. And it's actually a lot simpler for me to do that with people who have that infrastructure. So it's a game of building out that infrastructure too. And um, that's all happening gradually. The more valuable it becomes, the more people adopt it. And the other huge thing is I think a lot of this emergence is going to occur in, you know, developing economies in areas like the global South where, um people have a much greater incentive to hold something like Bitcoin because they're dealing with hyperinflation to a much greater extent. Um, and when they have that strong incentive to hold it, they also have a strong incentive to use it for payments because number one, they're holding it. Number two, a lot of these economies use remittance payments as a form of trade. So, you know, in our traditional system, if you're coming from Mexico City, you're working in the US and you're sending money back to Mexico City, you know, you're going to lose a major chunk of that value, you know, somewhere between like 20 to 40% sending that home. So it's like there, you know, there goes a quarter to almost a half of the amount you worked for just getting it back home. So these economies don't want that. Bitcoin and the Lightning Network is the perfect solution for that. So I think a lot more people are going to start using it for that use case. And then that means more and more people have the infrastructure for it, which means maybe you wake up and you go buy your coffee and you could use um, your local currency or you could use Bitcoin. You're like, oh, well, might as well use Bitcoin if everybody else has got it. And, um, and you know, there, there's a lot of things coming into play that are ultimately going to allow that to gradually build out. Eventually, I think we're going to hit a suddenly point where it starts to be used all over very rapidly. Awesome. Yeah. Man, well, thank you for everything, Eric. Um, before we 
wrap this up, I always like to ask a lightning round of questions. Are you up for the challenge? Hit me. <laughs> All right. Here we go. What's the last television show you binged? Uh, you know, I've been revisiting Game of Thrones. Mm. Yeah, it's been years, and I, I'm not a huge TV guy. I just kind of put it in the background sometimes when I'm going to bed. I end up just, like, reading about stuff while it plays in the background. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I like Game of Thrones a lot. Good good philosophy for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. So I like the background Te noise. Text or talk? Ooh, depends on the scenario. <laughs> um, but... I'm more of a talk guy. I like to get people on the horn when I have a lot to say, and I kind of don't look at the phone too much during the workday. Okay. Uh, coffee or tea? Ooh, coffee for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Bezos or Musk? Musk. iOS or Android? iOS. Oh, no, I can't say that. It's, it's used. I mean, Android. I've never used Android. I hate iOS, but... I need to get off it at some point. But yeah, I'm still on iOS. I'm kind of a LARPer. Okay. Uh, what's currently on your nightstand? Oh, uh, this is pretty basic, but Meditations of Marcus Aurelius has been sitting there for a while. Um, I read it a while ago. It just kind of sits there. Yeah. Uh, NFT or not? Uh, in the future at some point, yeah. Not today. Okay. And what's the one word that comes to mind when you think of Bitcoin? Mm, sovereignty. Lightning round completed. Thank you very much, Eric. Yeah, totally, guys. It was fun. Thanks for having well, me on. Thank you um, for coming here and talking with us and just, you know, having just a great conversation about, you know, so many very deep level topics that I think, you know, people will come out of this and say, aha, you know, I think they'll have a lot of aha moments, which I think will move the mass adoption. But that's just my perspective, just my thoughts. Um, any last comments or anything that you want to share with everyone? Yeah, check me out on Twitter. Um, just my name is my handle. And yeah, I'll, I try to keep a balance of tweeting about stuff that I think people can generally understand. And sometimes it'll be more technical. And I tell jokes and I shit posts. So you know, we'll be running the gamut if you give me a follow. All right. Um, for more information, uh, so why crypto? Our Twitter is also so why crypto website. So why crypto? Eric, thank you for joining us, and uh, we look to speaking with you in the future. Thanks, Eric. Awesome, guys. Yeah, take care. So, so, so why crypto? So why crypto? Why crypto? So why crypto? So why crypto? Featuring Vishal and Quay. Quay. Quay.